All right, you accursed. You've made your feelings clear. There have been whispers, pleas, even a write-in campaign. Get Jordan back to the curse of politics. Well, today's the day. Emerging from her weeks-long jungle camping sojourn, during which she communed with snakes, macaws, quite possibly a howler monkey, Jordan Lightnitz has found viable Costa Rican internet. Scott, Corey, David, and Jordan, we are four reunited. Balance has been restored. The pot is whole. Jordan, you must be missing us badly over there. Oh, yes. It's, it's, uh, it's very difficult, very hard uh, to be in the place where the air does not hurt your face. It's really, it's been a slog. <laughs> <laughs> Just here looking for conservative columnists and failed premiers, you know. <laughs> Have you found anything deadly other than those people? I mean, I think just my terrible surfing abilities. That's really, that's been mostly the most <laughs> lethal thing I've faced here so far. <laughs> mm. Scott, the last time you were in Costa Rica, you almost didn't come back. That's exactly right. I uh, thought I would have to spend the rest of my life there, get a mechanics license, and just, uh, you know, finish up working on uh, small engines. I, I was there during the, <laughs> at the beginning of the pandemic, and so... I'm like sitting, looking at the ocean as the Prime Minister declares that all international travel to and from Canada will be uh, closed down. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. I'm international travel, aren't I? Um, <laughs> then I got, a cad I got a note from a cabinet minister saying, listen, this is not official, uh, but like, and you make your own decision. But if I was you, I'd get the fuck home. I'm like, oh. Hmm, oh, okay. That sounds like good but, advice. I mean, for the record, I like that for you, Scott. I think I think you could do really well here. Yeah, for sure. There's no question. I mean, athletically, I fit the country like a glove. I look great <laughs> with my shirt off. I like the sun just greets my skin uh warmly. It's it's all it's all yeah. You saw I, what I, happened. You saw what happened to Pat Mahomes with his shirt off. Can you imagine what would happen to you with your shirt off? I, I'm so uncomfortable <laughs> in warm places. Like I, I feel I, like it'd be more I, like Elon Musk, like very, very white. That's that's kind of that's kind of how it is for me. Like, I'm a box of salt, man. It's bad news. <laughs> I do not do well in in nice warm places. All right, here's the show. Here's the show. Danielle Smith, transgender youth, their names, pronouns, parental rights, a political issue. Is it smart? Those conservative fundraising numbers, record-breaking 11.9 million in the fourth quarter, 35 million for 2023, another record for non-election year. Uh, how important is this? Well, the Libs shopped around a new attack line last week focused on Curse of Politics alumni Jenny Byrne. We'll wrap all that up into the latest happenings in Ottawa on federal politics. And our Curse Clipping comes to us from Tonda McCharles in the Toronto Star, David McNaughton, former uh, Trudeau campaign chair, former ambassador to Washington, says Trudeau needs to can the Trump MAGA trash talk. And of course, Gordon Pinsent and our Hey Hughes. So, folks, great to have you back. Good to see you. Jordan, I'm going to start with you. Danielle Smith keeps getting our attention on this show. She announced a new set of laws and regulations dealing with transgender youth last week parental notification, limits on medical procedures, rules about sports participation, all kinds of things. I'm sure we could have a rollicking session on the appropriateness of these measures, but our mandate is to talk about the politics of it. In Alberta, I see that the NDP and Rachel Notley have risen to the fight and going right at her. 
on this. So are the federal liberals, which is interesting because no matter how outraged by Smith you are, it does appear that most people agree with her. Should the federal liberals and the NDP be seeing this as an opportunity, Jordan? Yeah, uh, I'm not. I'm not so sure about the agreement, and I think this is an interesting thing to parse. And some some of the public opinion research in the United States has done this, and, I, and I'm not sure it's been quite so thoroughly done here in Canada. But there there is a really big difference, I think, between surface kind of concern and lack of familiarity around the issue of transgender kids or the idea of a child changing their gender. Uh, there's a big there's a big distance between that and wanting. Uh, interventionist, hard legislative measures to remove rights from people. And I think that the mistake that Smith is making here uh, in this push is, is conflating those two things. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think that this is likely going to be a liability for her, not unlike uh, the Sovereignty Act, not unlike the Alberta Pension Plan. This is something that, uh, well, abhorrent for the people who are interested in it, it's a lot better in theory than it is in practice. And so if she actually does move ahead with this as described, um, and I think it's worth underlining, this is something that is, this goes, of course, much, much further than anything that's been discussed in any other province. And actually, it's not, it's not even just limited to trans kids. Like, she's getting, reopening everything around sex education, around any discussion um, of homosexuality in schools, sports like that it's all, that's adults going right into medical decisions so it's a very wide ranging and so i think that it's one thing when you talk about that in practice and she may find the validation among her take back alberta party members which is now by the way almost all of them head of a leadership review which is i think the obvious and main motivating factor here but once you know she needs to use the notwithstanding clause to do this or when teachers start getting disciplined or fired, or, you know, when, God forbid, uh, you know, trans kids start having mental health crises or worse, even suicide. You know, this is stuff that's going to, that, that will happen if these things are actually implemented. It is a much less clean thing. So I'm not actually sure that she's done herself any long-term favors here. She has certainly put the federal conservatives in a pickle on this issue. And we're going to have to see how they navigate that. I think that for the NDP in Alberta, there is no choice but to join this fight. Uh, it is the right fight for them. This does go to character. She is kicking down. She is picking on uh, a group that is 0.4% of the population and making laws uh, here, making proclamations that are based largely on disinformation. There is nobody under the age of 18, for example, who's having bottom surgery. That's not a thing. Um, and so they, they are meeting that fight uh, in a place that aligns with their principles, and I think that that's always a good thing to do. Um, I think for the federal liberals, it's maybe a little bit different. Of course, the, this is uh, also a values issue for them, so it's going to be very hard for them to stay out of it. But I think in, in a different sense, that's a fight there that Daniel Smith really wants. She really, really wants uh, the Trudeau liberals to come out and take that up as part of her larger battle with Ottawa. And that one, I think that the problem there is that the federal liberals are going to make a lot of noise of concern about this, as they should. These policies are very dangerous. Um, but then the question becomes, what are you going to do about it? 
And so that's where they risk looking, I think, uh, a little bit impotent in the face of this. So we'll see how it plays out. I don't think in the end, I don't think it's going to be a smart move. And I think that not unlike what Prentice found on GSAs, uh, she will find that the people of Alberta are not perhaps who she entirely thinks they are. But maybe it'll get her through her leadership review. We'll see. So, Corey, can we just try to <clears throat> understand this a little bit? Because, I mean, StatsCan says this uh, that 0.33% of the population identifies transgender, maybe a little higher among Gen Z. Um, but of 15 plus overall, 0.33% identify. Um, and yet everybody seems to have an opinion about this. Angus Reid did a poll. They asked people that don't know was pretty small. Um, people have an opinion about this. What is it about this issue that ha- would have people thinking, talking, and making political choices about it um, when it's so largely inconsequential? Well, it's a culture war issue that is very prominent in U.S. politics and U.S. media right now. And, and we watch more U.S. media than we do Canadian media. So we're very uh, subject to influence from, from what we see going on in, in, the, in the public square in the United States. So I think that's, I think that's part of it. That's partial explanation. Um, I kind of disagree with uh, Jordan in terms of the politics of, of, of this. Like, uh, uh, I don't. I don't think this is a problem for for Smith in particular. Uh, and uh, and looking at the numbers, it's, you know, what she's proposing is not unpopular. Quite the opposite, it is popular. And so, therefore, I wouldn't put it in the same category as like the Sovereignty Act, which three quarters of Albertans didn't agree with. Uh, this is something that three quarters of Albertans do agree with. So, you know, it's it's hard to see when you're you're. Uh, you know, acting on something with that level of support, how it's going to be a political problem. Um, how it plays out, though, I, I, I hear what Jordan's saying around, you know, this this isn't going to play out over time necessarily as it's playing out today, as uh, uh, other voices, uh, you know, enter the debate and as, uh, uh, you know, uh, anomalies or unintended consequences of the policy might play out in a way that's that's not favorable. But but at, at, on the surface of it, I don't see how this is going to be you know a big problem for. Here's where I do think it, it's problematic, though. Like with a, you know, and I'm ignoring the policy element of this, just speaking uh, about the politics. It, it's hard in this environment of uh, cost of living concerns and high inflation and all, all the stuff we talk about every week to to think that something that affects such a small number of people is is uh, for most voters as high on the triage of uh, important issues for the government to be taking on. Um, uh, I, I kind of, I've always been concerned with this issue. It looks a little bit like fiddling while Rome burns. And, um, and as a result, uh, you know, it's probably a good one to, to uh, uh, put on the back burner, not on the front burner. Right. So last time out in this space, I put the most recent StatsCan consumer price index data in the window. I won't repeat the deets, just the salient point of it all. In a time of marked inflation for almost every consumer good and service, and you know that's true because you feel it every day, the prices you pay for cell services and internet have done nothing but deflate. In the case of cellular, over 50% in the last five years. And that's in the broader context of national carriers like our presenting sponsor TELUS, investing billions in their technology, infrastructure and services. I've been talking about it for weeks now. We're in an innovation economy, Hurley Burleyites, and continual investment is the only thing that's going to grow it. 
But let's go back to those price decreases. A lot of it naturally flows from the increased competition the government has been aggressively calling for in the telecommunications industry. Good on the feds. There are four national players, plus 10 flanker brands out there now. That amount of choice, that level of elbows up, heated competition for every customer, means that Canadians can shop around and find the best deal in the market. And they do. There's more. According to Innovation Science and Economic Development Canada's recent report, we have lower prices across almost every kind of wireless plan than the U.S. We pay less than our neighbours for wireless services across all income levels. Even when you go back to 2020, more than 80% of Canada's wireless plans were priced below international benchmarks when network quality, plan type and other costs were factored in. And all this price cutting comes at a time when the wireless industry's labor, materials, energy and equipment costs, remember the inflation I talked about earlier, have gone up and up and up. We'll talk more about that next time. So Scott, just to just to pick up on that, I mean, from the from the federal liberal perspective, uh, I mean, for this cabinet, I'm sure that they are genuinely outraged by what Smith is doing. So it wouldn't like they'd have to summon fake outrage. I think they're probably genuinely outraged by it. But should they rise to the fight the way that they have been? I mean, Reed Angus Reed's polling says that. You know, around the issue of parental notification, with every further step, it gets more controversial. But around the issue of parental notification, it is not controversial. Almost everybody who's a parent agrees with that, and almost everybody who isn't a parent agrees with that. And when you don't agree with that, it sounds like you think that the state knows your kids better than you do, or the state's better to take care of your kids than you do. So, but even regardless of whether it was popular or unpopular, just to go to care you know, Corey's inverse point. I mean, the Liberals have to try so hard now to try to convince people that they're focused on cost of living issues and that they're focused on making people's lives better. Do they really have a number of weeks or months to be diverted talking about something like this? Uh, so, no, I don't think this should be their uh, fight. I, look, I, I, I don't know if, I won't say everybody, but I, I, <laughs> I recognize uh, how objectionable this is. Like it, 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 it's the kind of thing that angers me, right? But that's not our job is to talk about what you think about the policy and all that kind of stuff. It's like, what are the political implications? I do think this is a less, I'll just, I'll back up a step before I answer your question directly, David, because I think one, this is a less clean fight for exactly some of the reasons you just outlined than, than Daniel Smith and her team might be thinking. Um, because it goes far beyond, it goes measurably far beyond parental notification, which I think is a very, very difficult wedge issue on this subject matter for, um, for, for opponents. Uh, because if you just more or less limit it to parental notification, but you as an opponent of the policy wish to elevate it to a moral uh, battle, you, you're going to be in tricky political territory. But it goes so far beyond that. Um, and I think, you know, there is this issue of state involvement, the very thing that people go, well, hang on, like, uh, I'm uncomfortable with the state just you know, making these decisions, she's trending into that because of how intrusive her policies are. Where it's like, okay, this is what you can and can't tell these people. This is what you can and can't do. Doctors must not and must do such and such and all of this. And I just think that 
that's going to be a less clean battle as the assembled opponents sort of come together and punch and punch and punch and punch. And I think we, you know, we kind of go, well, you know, she's won elections and she got through stuff. And so we think that all the questions about her competence and her capabilities are settled. I don't think they're still settled. And most people's minds still say, huh, is this a person I really want making these decisions? I thought this was a libertarian government. Now they're actually talking about like what my kids can be taught in the schools on this subject and what can be said and is um you know as jordan says once we move into them taking uh taking action against uh educators and all that stuff so i think it's i think because it goes so far beyond parental notification this thing is a lot muddier and murkier than it looks like on the face of it that being said i understand that the federal liberals have to object to it they should as a matter of moral imperative they should um making it a battle like they put the prime minister out on this and I, I am puzzled as a matter of political tactics that they seem to be giving this more volume and ferocity than they did the CPP. To my mind, if they want to have an argument with the government of Alberta, if they want to say, all right, well, if we're willing to be big, bad Ottawa. We're willing to play the wolf at the federal door that she wants us to be. Play it on that issue. And that issue isn't dead. People are making assumptions that she's going to walk away from that proposal. We don't fucking know that. We have no idea about that. So I'd be hard on that issue. Um, I think you have to raise objections about this, but I don't think you want this to be the cleavage fight with Daniel Smith. I think you I think there are better issues. I think the CPP is a better issue. And And I feel greasy saying all that because I think this is this is a kick down policy. This is like, let's pick on the most vulnerable. There will be fucking kids who commit suicide as a consequence of this. Like there will be. And I just think, you know, it's awful. But if we're going to talk about the pure politics, this isn't the first or best fight if I was Ottawa that I would pick with Alberta. It's an emerging conservative strategy, obviously, Jordan, because we saw it first pop up in New Brunswick with Hayes, and then we saw it pop up in Saskatchewan with Moe. And... Um, and now in Alberta. So they've obviously decided that this is a wedge that works for them as a movement um, and breaks liberals and New Democrats away from the core values uh, of Canadians. And uh, what is your advice um, to the federal progressive parties as to uh, what they should be doing with this. Uh, I mean, and, and I'm just going to add one last cautionary note as somebody that went through the, uh, that went through the sex ed curriculum stuff with Kathleen Wynne. Um, I know that we are not fully calibrating how this plays in many immigrant communities and new Canadian communities in Canada. Um, and that um, in places where liberals traditionally do well and the conservatives want to do well, I suspect that more people agree with this than us. Yeah, well, and I, I think that we, in Ontario, we're, we're still living that sex ed fight, right? Like there, there are high levels of disinformation about the curriculum that still continue to circulate in those communities. And, and that's something that's a political reality that the Conservatives have really successfully exploited. So I, I think I actually would see the issue of trans kids as a, as a successor issue to this. This is the next front in that same set of cleavages. My advice, look, I think, I think the advice and the advice also goes for the Alberta NDP is uh, that progressive parties need to walk and chew gum on this. They, need, they can, can and should stand up and strongly oppose these policies. 
Um, but they also need to point out that when Danielle Smith is consumed with this battle, again, like less than 0.4% of the population, that's where she's not fixing the healthcare system. She's not dealing with the housing crisis. She's not, um, you know, handling any of the issues related to drought or affordability or any of the other things that actually are confronting people in Alberta. And so in that sense, I think particularly for the Alberta NDP, as they kick off their leadership race, this is a bit of an opportunity for them to show uh, for those leadership candidates that they have the bandwidth and the capacity to fight that two-front war with Danielle Smith. They, they can answer on those, um, on those socially conservative questions, but not let that consume the, uh, the party's push and the campaign. They need to remain connected to those issues that are grounded in, uh, in people's experience of, of really the affordability crisis writ large and the fact that folks have a sense that the government services that they rely on are really broken. And it is, it is completely fucked up. Like she is about to, if she actually goes through with this, she is about to launch a massive amount of government resources into constructing and then defending before the courts a completely wrong-headed and dangerous policy. And there is an opportunity cost to this. The government focus, the political focus that is going to go to this is, is time and energy and money that could have been going to these other priorities. And that's a point that can't get lost in this battle. Corey, do you see political wins for the Conservatives here? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, you know, with, with the same caution that I gave uh, earlier, like, you know, these things are kind of comparative. Like, you know, it, it looked from afar like the foreign interference issue would be really good for the opposition too. But uh, in the end, I don't think it was. And it's not that, that they weren't on the right side of public sentiment on it. It just was, I think, the wrong priority uh, for what uh, was really animating the electorate and, and uh, voter decision-making. So, um, you know, I, I, you know, I think this is uh, an approach that for most Canadians is intuitively true, especially around the prevent parental notification. But, uh, you know, what I've always saw, thought is interesting when you looked at um, some of the earlier polling around this about, you know, people uh, wanting to be informed. But then when you also ask them, so how would you respond if, if your child came out as transgender, you know, overwhelmingly supportively. So, like, you know, it seems like this is uh, more of a problem in terms of uh, some some straw man versions of it that are that are out there as to what's actually going on in, in the education system, as opposed to like a, a like a real problem with with, you know, a lot of evidence behind it that it's that, uh, you know, that, that it is a problem. You know, so I, I don't know. I I think it's um, has dangers here for both parties. Um, but you know, on the surface of it, who's there more danger for, I think it's more on the progressive side that there's danger in this. Yeah, I think probably, and especially given the hurdles that they have to come out, have to get through in terms of reframing themselves. And this is an issue that frames the government in the same way that people have been seeing it in the past with the same kind of priorities that people have seen it to have in the past. And they need to shift that. And a focus on this is not uh, not helpful. Think what it means to lead a company in 2024. There was a time, not terribly long ago, when shareholders and big investors really only had one expectation, that the company would, within the bounds of the law, make as much money as possible. Governments and regulators were pretty much on board with that. 
There was a deep pool of skilled and unskilled labor available. Nobody but economists had even heard of supply chains. All of that has, uh, well, it's changed. Like all big companies, our sponsor, CN, now competes with its peers to recruit in a tight labor market. Employees nowadays come to the job with different expectations. Stakeholders and investors are increasingly active. There is pressure to create sustainability and a workforce that reflects the diversity of the population. And of course, to continue earning profits in a volatile economy with sclerotic global supply chains. That's what it means to lead a company these days. CN's approach is discipline and a relentless focus on service. Producers, manufacturers, and shippers must, must have reliability. That means the trains have to depart and arrive on time more often and spend less time sitting in the station, which is exactly what's been happening at CN the past couple of years. Freight trains are already among the cheapest, most efficient means of moving essential goods. CN believes adding rock-solid reliability to the equation is the way to grow. At the same time, the railway strives to deepen the trust of its employees, its neighbors, the indigenous communities along its network, and governments at all levels. You know, a lot has been written about the supposed tension between profitability and good corporate citizenry. CN believes that in 2024, those remits are complementary. Neither can exist on its own. CN had a good year in 2023. It intends on having a better one in 2024. It intends to grow. All right, let's get to our clipping. It should be fun. <clears throat> Tonda McCharles in the Toronto Star, oddly enough, had an interview with David McNaughton. He's no longer a public figure. David McNaughton's a longtime liberal activist, longtime executive in the lobbying industry in Canada, um, one of the chairs of the Trudeau 2015 campaign and subsequently appointed ambassador to Washington. Canadian ambassador to Washington. Now, now he's back and working in the private sector. And he did an interview with Tonda McCharles, and here's some of what she wrote. A former Canadian ambassador to Washington says Justin Trudeau should ditch the anti-Trump mega-conservative rhetoric directed at the Liberals' conservative political rivals. David McNaughton, who co-chaired the Ontario campaign for Trudeau's 2015 election victory, says it's neither a wise domestic political strategy nor is it smart for Canada-U.S. relations. Moreover, McNaughton said there's no indication that drawing such a contrast would be a winning electoral strategy for the Liberals here at home. Attacking Conservative leader Pierre Poiliev, quote, by itself isn't going to work anyway, end of quote, he said, and, quote, secondly, trying to draw a comparison with Donald Trump, why would you run the risk? In McNaughton's opinion, the bigger challenge for the Trudeau Liberals is to persuade Canadians that they understand the world has changed dramatically since their 2015 election, and even since the most recent election in 2021. He said they need to under demonstrate they understand the economic pain and anxieties that, change, that stem from a changed global order and are prepared to make changes to how they govern, not that they will continue to do more of the same. He suggested if Harper had admitted to mistakes and promised to govern differently in 2015, it may have posed a dilemma for the Trudeau campaign back then. Corey, there's a lot of threads to pick up on in this uh, column. I'll let you start with whatever thread you want to pull on. Well, first I'll start with I, I, I'm a really big David McNaughton fan. Like uh, I think uh, I think he's a hell of a nice person as an individual. I, I think he's very smart. I think he did, did a, a, a top-notch job as uh, as our ambassador. And then when he says something, I think 
people should take heat because uh, he's a very experienced guy, you know, knows politics well, uh, understands all the nuance of Congress and 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 uh, uh, and the White House and how how all that plays and the risks there for Canada. So, you know, in my mind, there's I have uh, no doubt that you know what he's saying is 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 heartfelt and genuine. And I also think it's it's probably true. Like um, that said, if uh, if I were Trudeau, I would be very uh, un- unhappy uh, about this intervention because I think from a political perspective, uh, it uh, it calls into question uh, the judgment and the uh, and the clear campaign strategy that they're pursuing to go after Trudeau at a time when you know their judgment and their strategy is being questioned internally. Uh, by caucus and and by cabinet ministers and by uh, the the commentariat like us, uh, so it's it's just a you know one more person piling on saying hey you guys are not really uh, uh, pursuing a smart political approach here. So so I think it's, it's probably quite unwelcome, but you know also heartfelt, genuine, and probably correct. Scott, there's two <laughs> at least. A- two things to ask about here, one of which is the, subs- <clears throat> the substance of McNaughton's comments, some of which, by the, for the record, I agree with and some of which I don't. I don't agree with his advice about the campaign, uh, about the uh, negative advertising on Polyev. I do agree with his advice about the government's need to uh, adapt to a new reality. But regardless of whether I agree or disagree, um, why did he feel the need to say it? Like he is a close friend of Katie Telford's and a mentor uh, he obviously has a very strong relationship with the Prime Minister, was appointed to Washington, worked on the campaign, was appointed to Washington, presumably worked in advance. It shouldn't be problematic for him to convey this view to the people whom it's relevant to convey it to. Why would he choose the Toronto Star as his delivery mechanism? I don't know, but I think it's wrong. And, um, you know, I, all the provisos, he conducted himself with immense professionalism and capability as our ambassador. Um, he's super respected, well known. Um, I don't know him as well as, as you do, David, but you know, um, not going to quarrel with his, uh, credentials, but I think it's wrong to do this. And the reason he's being interviewed on this subject is that he was the U S ambassador. He was our ambassador to the United States. He came into that position as a consequence of the confidence that Justin Trudeau had in him. And he has technically every right in the world to air his views, and he's going to be asked for his views given the U.S. election uh, that's unfolding this year. But my personal view, as someone that's been involved in politics for 30, 35 odd years, is the reason they're coming to you is because of the position you were provided by this prime minister. You're not me. You're not a jackass sitting on the sidelines who's doing commentary on TV, a podcast, or radio. You're the former ambassador. You were Trudeau's ambassador. Do not piss piss on him publicly. This is a question where I think loyalty should be, can be expected and should be expected. Um, And so I don't want to raise it to a moral level. Piss on him privately the way Frank did, right? Pardon me? Don't piss yeah. on him publicly. Piss on him privately, the way Frank did. Yeah, although yeah. sometimes venture into public. But I, <laughs> uh, uh, in all honesty, like just don't, don't do this. Like I mean, the easiest thing in the world is for him to make a headline on this subject. 
Um, and I think that you have to recognize um, that you have a unique relationship with the prime minister that you owe him and you genuinely owe him and you ought to owe him your loyalty and your discretion. Share your views. Be vehement. Um, all that being said, I'll also say that uh, I, I'm not in agreement even with his analysis. And, uh, you know, I think when people say, well, should the liberals go after the MAGA issue? I, I think that allows for a whole wide variety of possibilities and the subtleties I think people skip past. I think just screaming Trump light, Trump light at Polyev is a stupid strategy. I think announcing the committees and the way that they did and saying we're going to have to figure out what the consequences and implications are. I've talked about it before. I won't rattle on. But I think I think there are important issues here. And I think there is a strategy here. Um, and I think the government would be wise to explore and figure that out and execute with some subtlety and some, some sophistication. And so when David says, well, I just think all that should be read off the table for the sort of broad conventional wisdom reasons of, oh, you may have to work with Trump after he wins. As though he's just like another candidate that we may or may not disagree about a bunch of issues with. He's not another candidate, right? He's an aberrant force. And so I don't think you can look at it like it's a conventional circumstance. So for all those reasons, I disagree with the substance, but I, who cares about that? What I really fundamentally disagree about is the only reason people are seeking your views on this issue is that you were provided a position by this prime minister and you ought not to piss on him in the front pages of the newspaper. You owe him better than that. As Canada aims to achieve a net zero emissions economy by 2050, the clean energy sector will play a vital role in electrifying more parts of the economy that currently rely on fossil fuels, such as transportation, home and water heating, and heavy industry. Today, almost 85% of Canada's electricity comes from clean sources, and to reach its climate goals, Canada will need to build on that success. Today's podcast sponsor, Bruce Power, is a nuclear generating facility in Tiverton, Ontario, that currently supplies about 30% of Ontario's electricity and is committed to helping Canada achieve its economic and climate change objectives. Recent studies suggest Canada's electricity supply will need to at least double by 2050. And as this demand grows, we have to make sure supply remains affordable, reliable and clean. Bruce Power is refurbishing its fleet to secure a reliable supply of clean electricity to at least 2064 and is investing in increasing the energy it produces from its existing reactors. Investing in clean electricity means cleaner air, better health, and more jobs as we build Canada's clean energy economy. Well, Jordan, I don't know if Tonda McCharles talking to David McNaughton penetrated the hum of the cicadas uh, <laughs> surrounding you, but if it did, do you have a take? Well, yes, um, uh, only forcibly, David, I must say. <laughs> I don't know David McNaughton personally, but, I, you know, I, I think I have views on the general dynamic here. And I, I think it's always interesting when somebody who is extraordinarily well-connected, who has direct lines in, chooses to phone a reporter instead. And that gives us information both about them and also about the people that they're trying to access and persuade. So... 
I think this whole incident tells me that the PMO is as close to outside advice as ever because, you know, I think either in Tonda's piece or in, in, in another, McNaughton talks about having, having offered this counsel privately and having it fall on deaf ears. Um, and it also, it also tells us, of course, about, about uh, David McNaughton himself. And, I, and I, maybe I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily state it quite as strongly as Scott, but it is a truism that the currency in politics is loyalty. So you got to be really thoughtful about where you're spending that. And so he is, he's making a statement, of course, in doing this. And, and I'm not sure that it's one that ultimately will reflect super well on him, because if you're going to do that, you better have a really good reason and offering deeply, deeply mainstream takes uh, on this that are sort of reflective of a pro-business community um, rather than a political, politically astute um, thought process on this. I'm not sure it's the, I w I'm not sure it's where I'd be spending my currency. Let's put it that way. Um, look, as to his points, I, I, like everybody else, I agree with some of them. I disagree with others, you know, where I'm in agreement. I, I think that as we've discussed at length here, just slapping on the MAGA attack and analysis on Pierre Polyev is simplistic and I think is not likely to work. So there is, I think there's some truth to that. But like Scott, I agree that the, the, the notion that we should just be normalizing a Trump presidency as though it's any other thing, I think is, is wrong. Uh, it's dangerous. It's not politically right either. It's not, it's not the correct advice. So I think that it's short-sighted in that regard. And um, I find it curious that uh, somebody who is so well-connected within the government and more broadly chose to express themselves this way. And, and so I think that's telling. But one thing I, I will say, you know, I found it really interesting. So last week, you had you had this come out, um, but we saw you know we saw the NDP also actually pick up another line of attack on Polyev, just as as we've talked about. What are their other options other than adopting this Trump light um, line? And and so the NDP, I think two or three days ago, they put out a little ad where they're trying to tie the conservatives to provincial premiers who are cutting or underfunding services and going after Polyev's voting record on cutting uh, federally funded services. And so, you know, whether this is the right answer or not, like, I don't know about that, but I think it's interesting to see other lines out there. There are other tools on the table that the federal liberals could be grabbing onto that actually make a case that puts the voter at the center of the story and the services and the things that they care about and rely on, um, and that ties it to Polyev's actual record, that he is not... He's not just an amorphous sort of right-leaning blob that he's somebody who has voted on things and that we can have proof points to illustrate how he might behave in the future. And so I thought that was an interesting move on their part. And, um, and, and I'll be interested to see if the liberals diversify any of their attack lines coming out of this. Don't you think, go ahead, Corey. Yeah, I was going to say, but don't you think that, that there, like, I think the portion of his advice about, uh, saying that you've done some things wrong or that, you know, maybe not even going that far, but, but course correcting in a demonstrable way on issues where you're way uh, outside of where public opinion As opposed is. To I trying totally to agree that on you've that. Been focused I on that totally issue agree. The whole time. That is good advice. Yeah. That is solid agree. advice. Yeah. And, uh, and, but that's and that advice that you would, can give privately as well. Yeah, no, I, I look, I that's agree. A pretty, but, I mean, it's, it, but, who gives but, a shit when we say it? 
But well, that's a pretty searing piece of advice coming from him in public. Because sure. But, but underlying that is you're off course. Yeah. But the, I think the point Jordan was making earlier is, is bang on. It tells you more about uh, the willingness of the Trudeau uh, leadership team to accept advice from within their own family, really, because that's what McNaughton is like. This is. Yeah, this he's is not an outsider. Favorite uncle. This isn't the crazy uncle. This is the favorite uncle that uh, you view as he a mentor. He took the Tony Ayano like bullet for that. You know, so like this is uh, this is advice. You know, I think delivered with love and with with uh, with a you know a genuine uh, you know desire to see good happen with it, but also delivered out of frustration that nobody is giving and nobody is listening. No one's picking up the phone. And, you know, so uh, like it, it, maybe it's a bit of a public intervention. Look, I hear everything you're saying around loyalty. I don't disagree with, with any of that. And I'm sure that's how it's going to be perceived by the, uh, by team Trudeau. But, you know, if they, if they want to be, you know, 20% more self-reflective about, you know, why that's happened, uh, there's, there's probably a lesson there that's pretty important for them to, to absorb. There's one more thing I'm going to say about this, which is that there's something that I know from this article that David McNaughton believes that he did not say in this article. He believes they're toast, or he wouldn't have done this. Yeah. Right? That's reasonable. You, you he hit has, that button once. Right. If he thought they were likely to get reelected, my bet is doesn't do the interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably true. And by the way, it seems like the most plausible explanation, and it may very well be the correct explanation. But the assumption that we're making, and that's been repeated here a couple times, that he has advice to tender, and it's not been received well privately, and therefore he figures, shrug of the shoulders, what do I care, I'll tender it publicly. That is an assumption. And that is an assumption in particular uh, infers what their relationship is like and where that relationship is at, but the Trudeau, between him and Trudeau, between him and Julie, between him and Katie. And this is a family matter. Like, and I'm not going to make that assumption. And I'm not going to, I'm not even well, going to say, like, I just, I just don't yeah. fucking know. Does I just don't know. Does does he, he indicate he it in the interview? up that phone call, right, Scott? Like, you pick up that fucking phone call. Worse, I'm just saying, I, I don't, I don't want to presume to recognize and understand the complex interpersonal dynamics going on there. I think you guys are probably right, but I don't know that you're right. And I don't, I just didn't want to leave it as a matter of assumption that that's, that must be what this means. Cause I don't know, this is their closed doors sort of stuff, which is what I object to so much about reading about it publicly. And I just don't want to infer about how their dynamics operate. Well, how 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 welcome to the advice that you guys give? Do you find it is taken? Yeah, <laughs> like, but I, like it's you know, I think it can't like, be I'm not an outsider. Talk to Tom. They didn't ask right? me to co-chair their campaign or yeah. serve as an ambassador or you know be there when the moments are absolutely white knuckles. So, like, I'm just a jackass. Yeah, it's look, uh, um, sure, but uh, you've seen outgoing cabinet ministers and others level pretty similar advice. So I think there's a bit of a there there. Oh, I, I think th- I think there is. But it's just, you know, on the whole, kind of an interesting thing. I mean, I presume it's a relationship-breaking event between people who've been very, very close for a long period of time. Uh, would be with me. Tell you that. If I was Telford, it would be with me. Um, no doubt. Right? Yep. 
I would take it very badly. And then people would laugh and they would go to lunch in Toronto and talk about what an asshole Reed is in Ottawa and how he's so immature that he can't take a little criticism in public. But I would take it fucking badly. Yeah, for sure. And I would hang on to that grudge like a jewel. (laughs) (laughs) Hurley Burleyites, you've heard it here before from our expert guests on the pod. Cost of living, tightened mortgage rules, dwindling supply. Most Canadians want to own a home. But that dream is slipping further and further out of reach, especially for young people and newcomers. Creating smarter home building policy is key to ensuring affordability. And our sponsor, the Canadian Home Builders Association, has recommendations to reduce Canada's housing supply deficit. With interest rates where they are, we need to adjust mortgage rules so first-time buyers can get into the market and more homes can be built. We need to modernize government regulations, policies, and processes so that they stop slowing construction and adding to the cost of housing. And with the ongoing labor shortage, we'll need the immigration system to bring in the right people to build more homes. We need comprehensive change so more families can unlock the door to home ownership. The Canadian Home Builders Association knows unlocking that door is possible. Building more homes faster that people can afford now that's a foundation to build on. Learn more at affordability.ca. All right, let's end with a little bit of a roundup of Ottawa events because I couldn't find a thematic. There was things happening last week, but I couldn't really find a theme to them. So maybe maybe you guys can pull this together for us. Um, conservatives continue to absolutely fucking hulk the fundraising numbers. Like it's just massive. Just massive. I see no reason why they would ever go off the air in terms of advertising between now and the writ, whenever the writ is. They've got enough money to keep pounding on multiple messages, right? Um, and in different regions, oh my God, they just the, the, the options at their disposal. Crazy. Uh, they have so much money, even I wouldn't know how to spend it all. Um, our friend Jenny Byrne has been in the liberal crosshairs because her lobbying company works for Loblaws, and they consider that significant enough that the Prime Minister uh, has brought it up. Uh, the NDP are trying out some attack ads softly on social. I'd like to see some more money behind them, Jordan, and I have some comment on them, but nonetheless, they're trying something out. But while the Liberals are increasingly throwing their ministers out there, and even the Prime Minister, but certainly their ministers, to lay the lumber on Polyev. Out of all of that, Scott, what stands out to you? Well, let's start with Jenny, just because it's going to be on the minds of people that listen to this pod. So I don't like it. I'm on the record. We've been through this in other campaigns and other political dynamics. I'm on the record as saying that I dislike going after the advisors as a method of uh, taking a crack. Um, I don't like it for a bunch of reasons. People are going to dismiss this and say, well, you know, you're just pals with Jenny, or if you were there, you would do it and uh, all that kind of stuff. But I don't like it. I don't. I don't. I don't like it when people sort of go, "Well, what about this close, longtime close advisor?" And going at that, go, go with the leader, go with the elected representatives. Um, and again, maybe that's a self-serving uh, perspective, but I've always held on to it, liberal conservative, either way. And at times, I've intervened to make that argument when people were tempted to make such arguments, and I didn't. I, it just didn't feel cricket to me. Um, the second thing is, I'm not uh, on the Jenny thing. Uh, I'm not convinced that it's 
I think it has a rallying effect among liberals. I think it gathers media because it's like, holy fuck, wait a minute, they're going after the queen bee here. Holy shit, man. Like, are they sure they want to stir that nest up? I'm not really sure it's going to have a lot of effect. I don't know that Canadians are going to connect all those dots and make all those calculations. So I think it could be empty calories as far as political attacks go. Feels good, but actually doesn't do anything. And then on the broader issue, like, I see a much more pronounced, aggressive strategy on the part of the liberals. I see that they have decided they will use question period and scrums and the the platform, small or large as though it may be, of government and parliament to try to generate earned media messages. And they are now, as a matter of formula, never talking about a policy issue without also inserting the contrast with the concerns. As a matter of strategy overall, I think that's the right way to go. I think there are questions about execution that concern me about how much the prime minister is asked to haul on that. Because once you commit yourself to that strategy, by implication, you say, well, our, like, the 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 biggest plow horse we have in the barn is the prime minister. He gathers the most attention. So we got to have him doing this also. But I do think it lands differently when it comes from the prime minister. Um, so I think that's something they got to think through. And I think all of this, by the way, really um, raises the question of impact. Uh, like there there's this piece in the Delacorte, uh, there's this piece by Susan Delacorte this weekend where she says, you know, you can't talk to liberals in this town without them mentioning how pleased they are with themselves, that they're really much more effect effective in defending themselves against the conservatives and they've gone much more on attack and they can really feel that that, well, I'm, I don't want to be a scold. Like, I'm glad that they're feeling a little bit of morale rev in the, in the, um, but I'm not sure I agree. And I think all of this is a default strategy where somebody has said, okay, we're not going to spend money on advertising. And we're not going to employ other tools. So make what you can of the tools available to you, which effectively are standing outside of the House of Commons and calling a scrum with four ministers or using uh, the back and forth in question period. And I'm just not convinced that that's going to get them out of the, the deep hole they're in. Um, I think they've got to look to other strategies. It's a bit Python-esque, eh? Come back here and I'll bite you to death. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, on, on this one, uh, I'm going to use a line from one of our one of our friends. I'm not sure if she wants to have her name uh, uh, put out there or not, but uh, it's I think it's big time small dick energy on the part of uh, Trudeau to make this attack. I don't think uh, it's a particular. Who's our, sorry, who's who's our friend who talks about small dicks? Uh, I, <laughs> I, just, I need to make a note of that for, for personal reasons. I have nothing to do with the are you, podcast. Are you, are you laying up the obvious joke of you in the mirror every morning? Uh, or, like, uh, <laughs> no, like, look, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's uh, a good attack for all the reasons that you stated, uh, Scott, in terms of going after staff. Like, I, uh, I, I actually think I wrote on this when uh, the Conservatives were going after. Um, uh, Rob Silver, uh, Kitty Telford's husband, uh, around this stuff. I thought it was spurious. I, I, like, I don't think there was a there there. Uh, I thought it was a cheap shot, not only at a staff person, but a staff person's spouse, which was even even more gross. Um, and I think this is kind of gross. Like, you know, let's just look at what the, the facts of it are. Uh, this is something that she's not worked on. This is something that, you know, is in a company that she's a part owner of. 
And, uh, and it's at the provincial level, not even at the federal level and not any, anything close to these issues that, uh, that they're inferring. So, you know, I don't think it's a, a very substantive attack in terms of where it's coming from. And I think having the prime minister uh, be the one to deliver it as opposed to one of us, you know, henchmen, like a caucus member or somebody else, I think is poor strategy too. Like the prime minister has a likability problem. And does he think it's going to improve if he goes out and beats up on a bunch of women verbally? Like, as I say, small dick energy, man, it's fucking terrible. So, you know, uh, uh, I don't think it should be encouraged. I don't think they should have done it. And I think they should walk back from it. Housing. It's the number one issue on the minds of voters across Ontario and the number one issue for decision makers. And for good reason. The average cost of a home in Ontario is close to $1 million, putting the dream of home ownership at risk for generations of Ontarians. Fortunately for us, loyal Hurley Burleyites, the original sponsor of this podcast, the Ontario Real Estate Association, is here to help with their latest housing research paper. The Ontario government has set an ambitious and much needed goal of building 1.5 million homes by 2031. While progress has been made, a shortage of builders, tradespeople and land, compounded by red tape and soaring interest rates, has put the province's housing goals at risk. Oria's latest report, called An Analysis of Ontario's Efforts to Boost Housing Supply, assessed the progress made on the 2022 recommendations from the Ontario Housing Affordability Task Force and outlines 10 action items to increase housing supply. Bold actions build homes. Actions like finally ending exclusionary zoning, allowing water and wastewater services to be provided through a municipal services corporation, and modernizing zoning to support commercial to residential conversions. The Ontario government has taken important steps to build more homes, and now is the time to put our foot on the gas to solve the housing affordability crisis. An entire generation of Ontarians is counting on all levels of government to use every tool available to them. There's just too much at stake to do anything less. Oria's latest report offers a roadmap on how we can get there. To read the full report, go to orea.com slash advocacy slash housing dash supply. So Jordan, I, 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 I thought this was um, inappropriate when the Conservatives and Kinsella did it to me. So I should probably, I should probably continue to think it's inappropriate when it's happening to, uh, to anybody else for the sake oh, of David, consistency. Oh, David, consistency is a concern of small minds. So. <laughs> but le- leaving, aside, leaving aside fairness... Uh, they went after me hard. There were newspaper articles, all sorts of things, committee hearings, right? I don't think in the 2006 election campaign that any voter knew who I was or that any voter changed their vote because of what David Hurley had done or what contracts he had gotten. This stuff just does not penetrate beyond Parliament Hill, does it? No, I think generally it doesn't. Um, Although, I mean, I I guess I'll differ with everybody else here. I do think close advisors are fair game. And, but I think that the bar uh, should be necessarily high for any attack like that. And this absolutely doesn't meet it in my mind. Um, I think advisors, and the reason I think advisors are fair game is because they're chosen by the principal, right? So there's a you know, there's a there's a, a real element there. These are people who have a, a lot of power, a lot of influence, and and I do think they play, as we all know, 
absolutely massive and influential role in government and government policy and in parties. And so I, I think to that, very senior advisors, I think, can be fair game. But the bar has to be really high. And it has to be an attack that also makes sense. And this one, to me, um, I see where they're going. I like generally the direction. Like, they are, they're trying to, you know, they're spreading the muck around a little bit. They're trying to take some of the wind out of the conservative sails around the issue of affordability and draw some links around hypocrisy. But look, I think Corey laid out really clearly why this is a very weak attack. There's, there isn't really anything there. And if you're going to shoot for the bear, in this case, Jenny, um, you don't miss the bear, okay? And they did here. This is not in any way a lethal blow. This is not something that is even going to be remembered two weeks from now. And for them to choose to put the prime minister out on it, to me, is absolutely nonsensical. So I think, as we've talked about, we can see that there's some elements. There's clearly a desire that they, to fight here. They've, got, they've had some, some you know, deep internal revelation about the need to be more on opposition footing. But the execution, to me, is, is still very, very uneven. And this is an example of that. I think the calculus was really off here, both in the choice of the attack and in the choice of the messenger. So I don't like it for that reason. I think uh, I, I think it, this would not have been enough to go out on. Um, I mean, maybe it will stick a little bit. It'll muddy the water. But also to circle back to the issue of grocery prices, which is really what's sort of the, the case, I, I think, that they would like to make underneath this all. Well, this government, the Liberals, have also been a complete fucking failure on this as well. Like, they're in the middle of wallowing in their failure to do anything concrete to bring down prices by asking the CEOs very, very nicely to please bring down prices. To be and fair, Champagne was quoted last week as saying that he's ma he's calling around to well, see if anybody would like goodness. to form a new grocery chain. Right? You Mr. Piggly well, Wiggly, are you yeah. there? Mr. Why Piggly Wiggly. Why would you even why would you even say that? It's just so feeble. So, and this is what I mean, right? Like so to me, they're actually going back and circling their own complete failure on this file. Uh, so I don't I think that at, at absolute best for them this week, this is a wash, but but with a knock on the PM for delivering this message that that's weak and uh, and and not true to brand for him. Well, I think it's a sign that Jenny's living rent free in his head, uh, <laughs> and uh, and like that there's a bit of a air of desperation around the whole thing. But let, let me put a silver lining. Can we end on a positive note around this? Um, I've had people take shots like this at me in the past too, and and here's what generally happens. A bunch of people who follow politics closely realize you do actually have a public affairs consulting company and you get more business. So, uh, you know, as cheap and, and, and appropriate as this was, Jenny will mm -hmm. sleep well on her pillow full of money uh, at the end of it is what I think the actual upshot of it is going to be because it's a bullshit attack. Uh, and, uh, you know, but hopefully it'll drum up a little business for her. Right. Just to go back to another part of the conversation. So that's wrapped up on Jenny, but just on the other part of it, because like there's been a couple of Delacorte articles and there's lots of like the ministers are looking for Mark Miller on the Hurley Burley. Ministers are looking for opportunities to take runs at Polyev. Right. Yeah. And to really describe. That's not every so, shot is a good one. <laughs> so yeah, it, look, so I, but I, wait a second. So it takes off the table. The notion that this government doesn't believe in negative campaigning. Okay? Yep. But what it puts squarely in the sights is they 
literally must not be able to afford advertising. Well, that's pretty clear. So we, we have to we numbers. have to we have to know this now that they right they are going to be scrambling to put together a fully funded writ campaign. Well, they're uh, going to do it with we, debt. They're going to shouldn't do it with expect debt. much in the way of advancement. They're going to They'll have a fully funded campaign thanks to a big bank loan, and they're going to end the campaign, you know, $20, $25 million in debt, probably. Uh, and whoever comes after yeah. Trudeau is going to be really in a terrible position. But, you know, we've seen this movie before. But, you know, when you look at those fundraising numbers, yeah, it's very clear they don't have the cash. And, you know, and it's frankly very clear the NDP don't have any cash either. So, you know, when you see why we're not going to have an election campaign, you know, you've got broken broker. Uh, who are uh, brokering a deal to stay in power to live another day and hope that that their numbers improve? But uh, financially, it's a it's a devastating tale of inequity uh, uh, in terms of the fundraising. I'll just add this. Um, obviously, the most obvious explanation, apparently the inescapable explanation, is that the dollars just aren't there to do advertising. I have had in the past people on this team. Argue to me straight face, David, that they don't want to do it and that the cognitive dissonance you're pointing out between pursuing an, an, an expressly negative strategy through their earned media efforts, including the use of the prime minister, including having the prime minister, Mr. Sonny Ways, at a microphone throwing shit at his opponent. And then in the same breath as they acknowledge that that is happening, say, yeah, but we're not going to do negative advertising because we don't think it works. And I I, I, it makes me it makes me shake my fucking head. So I, I'm just I think it's money, but don't rule out the possibility that there is some weird conceit uh, about negative advertising as well. But I just, I think that there is absolutely no way to make up for the lack of paid advertising on this with a scattershot effort that, like, the, of the type that we're seeing right now on, on opposition. On You just, you cannot. And we, you know, we've talked about this through a series of provincial campaigns as well, the increasing difficulty of successfully getting any narrative to land through earned alone. Even when you have the megaphone of government, that is incredibly difficult. And when you have... Uh, really the, the sort of hostility that Trudeau is facing, I think triply so. And if you're doing it with an approach that seems to be every minister kind of adopting their own oppo strategy and going out on their own, I just, I don't think you have a hope in hell of making that work. And if they are going to continue to use the prime minister in a way that is, that is not really thoughtful about his own brand and his own appearance on this, I, I just think that that is uh, not only is it the wrong approach that's not likely to yield the results that they need to see, but I think it could actually be very damaging uh, to Trudeau at a moment that he can't stand any more damage. Well, the other thing is when you have the prime minister and the ministers do it, they, they end up attacking on things that aren't the right things to attack on. Right? And right? All so attacks are not you're, equal. You know, they're, they're talking about how they offended they are by him or how offensive he is or, you know, that he's like this or he's like that. No, you want an ad on TV that says, you guys going to take away old age pensions or cut old age pensions. Every time the conservatives are in office, they try to cut old age pensions, right? And now Smith wants to take away the CPP. That's what you want an ad that talks about something that matters to well, someone. This is what contrasts like with what the NDP is putting, like is night and day from what the liberals are doing in terms of opposition. So I think that it's really interesting to see that obviously, despite the confidence and supply agreement, they're pursuing dramatically different 
strategies in terms of making that case. Can I just mention that I, I, uh, that I that I thought the Mark Miller interview was very good that you did, uh, David. Uh, I thought, uh, and I think probably doing more media like that for them would, would they'd be well served. Uh, because it puts out an explanation on some of the things that they're doing, you know. Obviously, I, I'm 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 not a, a super fan of uh, everything going on in the federal liberal government, but you know, I do think they've had a competence deficit, and 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 a, you know, at least from a, perspe- a per- perception pers- uh, perspective, in a lot of areas, including immigration, and having somebody. Uh, go out and do some interviews where it looks like they've actually read the file and they uh, are taking some steps to course correct is, you know, a version of what McNaughton was suggesting for them. And uh, and I thought he was well served to do it. He totally said they had to switch. They had to pivot on the issue. And, you know, I said to him, uh, is there more to come? He said, yes. Yeah. Right? Well, yeah. but but isn't that isn't that a better comms track than you know taking cheap shots at staffers as the prime minister? Like you know, I, the I think there's a lot more there's a lot more currency in the Mark Miller approach than there is in the Justin Trudeau uh, approach. If we're just looking at the last week, that's right. evidence of something. And what it's evidence of from a from, from the perspective of what's the coordinated strategy behind the government's communications efforts right now? What it tells you is that fundamentally the strategy is all right. More volume, more contrast, and go out and do it. And what that leaves is to the independent discretion of each minister and each spokesperson how precisely they'll increase the volume and draw the contrast. And few of them will do it in the way that's sensible, I think, like Miller. Many more will do it from a position of high-handedness. Our values are superior to his values. He's bad. We're good. Like that tone that comes out almost osmotically. So you get a bunch of that. And, of course, the other thing that's lost is any cumulative impact because they're not pounding on the same issue. They're not pounding. It's just someone has said, listen, we're just going to put bricks in the wall. The bricks aren't all the same color or made of the same substance, but we're just going to try to put bricks in this wall and hope that maybe that helps. And, um, and well, I, I, I... And to I, agree I, with Scott, like it's really been my experience that people who, and, and above all elected people who truly have a distaste for any kind of opposition work are very poor judges of the type of opposition attack that's likely to work. And so the fact that I agree with Scott. It seems to be being left to individual ministers to just sort of decide how they want to pursue that. I don't think that's going to be, be helpful for them. The one thing I'll say about that NDP ad that I saw, Jordan, is uh, I liked most of it a lot. Then at the end, when they got to the consequences, I don't think the consequences should be things that are being planned to do that won't happen. I think okay. the consequences should be things that people already rely on and care about that will disappear or be cut. Yeah, so I, think I, don't think, I, I don't think the hard attack is they won't implement dental care. I think the hard attack is they'll fuck the pensions. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. I think they're kind of on the right track. Uh, and it's it's good to see fucking somebody making that case federally. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I think I think you're right. That, and this is this continues some of the challenges that we've seen the NDP have in terms of selling that dental plan or selling pharmacare as a future-oriented thing versus something people already count on. Yeah. All right, maybe we should call in uh, Mr. Pinson. Ladies and gentlemen, please return to your seats. The hey yous are about to begin. Jordan, you get the privilege of the first hey you. Okay, well, I'm going to go back in time a little bit because I wasn't here, and I want to talk about Olivia Chow and her budget. 
Oh, oh. And um, so my hey you is she's holding a scalp or two in her hand, isn't she? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yep. right. <laughs> <laughs> victory lap, people. <laughs> so despite the whinging and naysaying and uh, wailing and gnashing of teeth, she pursued a ballsy, ballsy, gutsy strategy. Um, and she has absolutely some gains to show from it. I don't think she's out of the woods yet. I don't want to overstate it. But she has come out of a phenomenally difficult situation with some real tangible political wins. She squeezed the feds and got the juice. She was able to table her own budget with a lower tax increase than the staff recommended, which was like, oh, chef's kiss, you know? <laughs> and then to top it all up, all right, Scott is just fucking dying. Fucking come on. Oh, my God. <laughs> Minister, it, option one is we done. kill people. Option number two is we just injure them and they'll think. I so, am hey, not done, brother. The other thing that she did, which I just thought this week was so fucking great, was she said, you know what? Also, renters, we hear you. You are being squeezed. 50% of the city is renters, let's not forget. You, your multi-unit residential buildings will not be touched by this tax increases. So, like, protecting from rent hikes, like, all of it, this is a, this is a political high-wire act. I think, I cannot recall seeing something similar on a municipal level uh, where she has gained in such a short time such tangible wins. And at the start of a mandate, she is doing the painful shit first, as one always should, and she is doing it with style. Uh, I just want to hate you to her and her team. It is something to behold. I want to go next. Do it. <laughs> Do it. Because I've got the mirror. I got the mirror image, uh, which doesn't actually contradict uh, Jordan. But my hey you is to the federal liberals with respect to the Toronto file. I, I don't understand what the fuck you're doing, because I believe that the strategy that Chow pursued, I'm going to hold the taxpayers of Toronto hostage unless you give me a big check. I believe that that was so easily, easily defeated by just either giving her a check a long time ago and saying these responsibilities actually do have a federal implication and we're going to pony up because it's the right thing to do. We want to be seen on that. Or waiting far after her budget, two, three months later, and then saying, now we're going to give you those monies. But why? Why they would come stampeding to her victory? Yvonne Baker was in the newspapers bleeding about the fact that she was being mean to him and other Liberal MPs and that she was being unfair and he thought it was outrageous and then he stood behind her at that press conference with Freeland the other day <laughs> as they're all hugging and high-fiving. The thing I don't of understand. beauty. Oh. <laughs> Jordan is correct. Chow, was, Chow had a huge victory. But I don't really understand why the liberals handed it to her i can only conclude that they chose that to do so that they wanted to do so which leads me to wonder whether they, they feel weak scott they feel weak well maybe it's weakness but there were other ways still they could have uh they could have done this but to announce it on the eve of her budget knowing that that was going to give her massive rocket fuel momentum and then hold a press conference with her a couple days after it's coordinated it looks deliberate and i guess the conclusion i've come to is whether it's out of weakness or they think self-deluding strategy there seems to be a thought there that they can actually strike some kind of working partnership that that will bigfoot the ndp push in toronto and let me tell you 
Olivia Chow, when it comes to pay the political dividend on this from a partisan standpoint in the next election, will fuck you and fuck you hard. She will support new Democrats and she ought to. So if you think that this is going to blunt any of that, this is really stupid. You've given your opponent and she's your opponent in the next federal election. She is your opponent. You've given her a huge win, and it's goddamn puzzling. And by the way, she'll be back for more. $182 million for refugees? You haven't shut off that tap. She's going to turn that fucking tap again in two months and ask for more. Then what do you do? More. Ah, oh, just drove me so nuts. Do you, do you give her more? more. Yeah, you give her more. That's right, yeah. obviously. That's exactly what they're going to do. It's a sick but, but you, but you compl- complain and argue first, though. Yeah, you right. should make it look really, really reluctant so that you get no credit. <laughs> that's also, that's key. All right. Corey, what do you got? Well, I, I usually try to keep these positive. Uh, <laughs> and give people pats on the back instead of uh, a, a kick in uh, the, the shins. But uh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to do a bit of a more negative one. Uh, who do you think the, the the biggest, you know, most popular, most consequential uh, a journalist in in Ottawa covering federal politics is today? I, th- I think we probably agree it's 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 Vashi Capellos. You know, she she accounts for for more hours of political programming every week, she's got a radio show that's nationally syndicated. She does a daily, you know, uh, cable news show, and she does Question Period, the largest audience uh, uh, politics show every week. And a regular so, roster of strikingly handsome commentators that she it, relies yes, upon. She has a roster of strikingly handsome middle-aged men who come on uh, with the help of, of and the others. incomparable Kathleen Munn. That's right. Yes, uh, my good friend. So. Uh, uh, anyway, somebody who, let's just say, you should know what their fucking name is if you purport to be a cabinet minister in... Mer- Mercy uh, Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm watching... I, I saw Bashi. it. I couldn't believe it. I, yeah. I was watching Bashi's show, and Marcy Ian, who has, has no excuse, you know, you're a, a, an MP, you're a cabinet minister, uh, even though nobody knows who you are or what your portfolio is, if if people are curious, I think it's like gender, youth, and you know, I don't know, uh, wokeness. Uh, but someone of little consequence in the city of Ottawa talking to somebody who is a journalist. Marcy used to be a journalist at CTV, yet she gets on a program, does an interview with Vashi, and mispronounces her name like twenty fucking times, like twenty times, like. Come on, you know, uh, you know, one of these people who uses the interviewer's name to try to create a false sense of uh, uh, camaraderie or, or uh, relationship, and then totally blows it by mispronouncing your name. Yeah. It's Vassy. <laughs> oh, oh, wait, I'm going to call you Vassy again. No, I'm going to call you Vassy again. Like, no, it's Vashi. It's Vashi. Yeah. Get it right. Uh, I agree with anyway, my friend, just, Mr. Tanuk. <laughs> yeah. Hey, look, you know, you know, anyway, I just thought I thought it was, uh, you know, a terrible fail on on the part of uh, a not very successful politician. And I thought it was disrespectful. And anyway, shame on her. All right. It was weird watching it. Uh, it was a bad interview, too. Yeah. Um, but um, my hey, you goes out to the prime minister. Because um, I know he cares. So much. <laughs> My he was of the prime minister, and I'm telling you that if David McNaughton's not part of your inner circle, your inner circle's become too small. It's too insular. You're not hearing things you need to hear. Break it up. Bring somebody in. Somebody important. 
break that thing up, whether it's cabinet or the PMO or whatever it is, uh, this is a pretty clear sign that the whole thing's now too insular. And you're not going to hear the things you need to hear if you're going to win the next election. So that's my hey you. Uh, I want to thank Jordan for taking time out of her vacation and finding the logistics to make this thing happen. You guys are welcome anytime too. Um, but it was great to have uh, great to have the group of us back together. Uh, I need to thank our presenting sponsor, Telus. Our sponsor, CN Rail, Bruce Power, the Canadian Home Builders Association, and our original sponsor, the Ontario Real Estate Association, for their help with today's podcast. All of you who watched or listened to the show, thanks very much. And we'll be back next week with more of the Curse of Politics and hopefully still Jordan Lightness. See you then. Take care. Thank you.